Join me in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17. And, uh, we've been studying uh, this book of the Bible, and, and, and we've been calling this study The King and His Kingdom. And while you're turning there, I just want to extend a special welcome to uh, those who are here visiting for the first time. We're glad you're with us. Also, just want to welcome those of you who normally are at the 8.30 service, and uh, that, that hour loss of sleep just put a whooping on you. We're glad you're here, too. Matthew chapter 17 is a story that will be familiar to uh, many of you, if not most of you. And uh, the title of today's message is Kingdom Glory. We've had a lot to say about the kingdom and what it's like to live in the kingdom, but we've not said as much as we need to about the king. And we're going to talk about that a little bit today. Matthew chapter 17 and we're going to be reading verses 1 through 8. Matthew 17, beginning in verse 1. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother. And he led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we are here. If you wish, we'll make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. <clears throat> when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. This event takes place on top of a mountain. We're not told which mountain. Some scholars have, uh, have speculated that it was Mount Hermon. That would have been the highest mountain in, in uh, anywhere near Israel there. Uh, closer into Galilee, uh, one of the high mountains. That, and it could have, based upon the, the flow of the narrative, uh, they could have been placed near Mount Maron. Honestly, we really don't know. But we do know in Matthew that mountains uh, have a significant role. It seems like every time you see a mountain, there's something important going on. And that's the case here. There's something amazing. And when you read the accounts in, in Luke and Mark, you get a little bit of a fuller picture of why they were going up there. Uh, Jesus took only three of the 12 disciples. We're not told exactly why. But uh, th those three seem to be part of his inner circle. He spent a little bit more time with those three than he did with even the 12. Uh, Luke chapter 9 tells us that their purpose was to go up to pray. Jesus was getting alone and spending time in prayer. Uh, Luke also reveals to us that Peter and the other two disciples were almost asleep when this event took place. But when it took place, they were wide awake. And uh, as we walk through here, there are a couple of things I wrote down. And first of all, uh, I made a note that the king is glorious. As we think about uh, the glory of the king, 
the kingdom. Uh, the king himself is indeed glorious. Uh, verse 2 tells us that Jesus was transfigured before them. Uh, that's a word that's hard to really get a picture in the English language of. It's the, it's the Greek word from which we get our English word metamorphosis, a change. Uh, when we hear that word, we right think of a, a caterpillar that goes through this incredible change and out becomes a beautiful, beautiful butterfly. There took a, a place, a change there on the mountain. Now, Jesus didn't change form like a caterpillar does, but there was something about him that changed. Uh, the brilliant glory of his divine nature blazed through the veil of his humanity. And the disciples were able to see a veiled glimpse of the glory of God. Matthew 12 or 17 verse 2 tells us that his face became different and it shone like the sun. It goes on to say that his clothes became white as the light. Think about this now. In fact, I love uh, Mark, Mark's description. He goes a little further and kind of puts it in some earthy terms for us. Uh, he says in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus' garments became so radiantly white that no launderer on earth could get them that clean. Mark kind of puts it in perspective for us. Those of you who've done your kids' laundry, you know, I, I grew up in a home with four boys. We have four boys. Uh, there's a reason why we don't have a lot of white clothes amongst our four boys, because it is not easy to keep those things clean. And, and, and Mark tells us that even the greatest launderer in all the world, doing his very best work, could not get clothes looking this white. Jesus radiated glory. And, and, and the, the whiteness, of that, that, that's like the, that constantly comes back. When, whenever you see a glimpse of God in scriptures, you can read Revelation 1 and John's glimpse of, of Jesus. And, and it's just, he keeps describing this as light and, and, and incredibly bright whiteness uh, of his glory. As, as humans, we can't really wrap our mind around what's going on here. Without being there, without seeing it, I think even for those who were present, struggled to put this into words, struggled to find language to express what they saw. There's a psalm, Psalm 104, it's verse 2, that tells us, and we sing a song that uses this phrase, and it takes this phrase right out of Scripture, that God wraps himself in light. Now think about that for a second. God's trying to give us Pictures that we can understand, that as humans we can grab a hold of. And God just has wrapped himself, adorned himself in the light that is far more brilliant than we could ever imagine. The light of God's glory is always shining. But human beings, we, we, can't, we can't see it straight on. You know, when you were a kid, your, your, your parents probably told you, don't look directly at the sun, it's not good for you. If you missed that lesson, I'm sorry. You probably have retinal damage now because no one told you. Don't look directly at the sun. Well, man, God is, God is even that times uh, infinite. Like, you cannot look directly at God and, and, and make it. You remember uh, in Exodus, Moses wanted to see God, and God's like, oh, no, 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 <laughs> that's not safe for you. And so he, he, uh, he, he passes. He says, I'll let you see my back. And, 
and Moses got to see the veiled glory of God pass by him. But he couldn't look directly at the glory of God as a human being. The Bible tells us that no one has seen God and lived, but only through the revealed Son of God can we behold God. Jesus taking on human form can we see God in that way. But here in this, in this moment, on this mountain, Jesus' veil of humanity uh, just lifted just a little bit. Peter, James, and John got to see the majesty of God. One writer describes it like this. He says, whatever color had been in the garments of Jesus completely vanished. Now there was the purity of the manifestation of light. No refraction, no absorption, pure, unvarnished light. His face began to glow, radiating a light of its own. And it, as intense as the, the light of the sun itself, such as that no human being could gaze upon it without destroying his own eyes. This description defies human comprehension, and we simply call it the transfiguration. Something miraculous happened there upon that mountain. The glory of God was on full display. How do you describe glory? If someone asks you, especially if, if you've grown up in the church and You've used it's a, it's a it's a Bible word, it's a church word. How, how would you describe glory to someone? <laughs> it's a hard word to define. I mean, you think about there's a lot of things in the English language that we have a hard time defining, even things that we do. Like think about I, I love baseball. Imagine describing the game of baseball with no visuals, no video clips, no anything. Imagine describing the game of baseball to someone who has no concept. Think about all the, the things that go in there, throwing a ball, and you only get three swings unless you hit the ball backwards, and then you get another chance to have it, and, 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 and all the elements of where you've got to run and where you've got to throw, and, and um, it, it's incredibly difficult. Now, imagine taking a concept like the glory of God and trying to explain that and, and in human terms. I love that God has given us a story here of what happened. Rather than trying to, trying to describe his glory in abstract terms, we, we just see it here. And it's just, it's so amazing that it's, it's knocking these guys down to the ground uh, and, and it's leaving them forever changed. The glory of God was on full display there upon the mountain. The writer of Hebrews tells us about Jesus, that he is the radiance of the glory of God. That's what Peter, James, and John saw that day. The word glory uh, in, in Hebrew in the Old Testament is pronounced kavod. It, it literally means heaviness or weightiness, something of substance. When, when the scriptures describe God, of, God is glorious, it's not saying that he's actually physically uh, heavy. He doesn't weigh a lot. But it's saying that there's tremendous weightiness to who he is. There's tremendous substance. It's often used, when, when it's used to speak of people uh, in the Old Testament, it describes their wealth or their splendor or their reputation and their honor. It gives us a little picture of what it means when it speaks of God. Jesus doesn't just merely reflect the glory of God. He is the glory of God. When you come to the New Testament, the word that's used Almost exclusively of glory is the, the Greek word doxa. For whatever that's worth there, that is. You've got a Greek word and a Hebrew word today, and you can impress somebody who probably doesn't care <laughs> with your knowledge of Hebrew and Greek. 
In certain places in the New Testament, doxa refers, like kavod, refers to human honor, but its chief use is to describe the revelation of the character and the presence of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's to show the godness of Jesus. He is the outshining of the divine glory. And that's what we see here on the mountain. Glory is not really an attribute of God. It's sort of the sum of his attributes. When you bring in his, his love and his holiness that we sang about this morning, when you bring in all of his knowledge and his goodness, and you begin to describe his grace and his justice and his omnipresence, all these things contribute to his glory. Glory means that God is showing us that he is near. It's the manifestation of his presence. Other writers describe it like this, that the glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections. It's the majesty and eminence which radiate from God's own being. <laughs> it, it, it's, you hear common words come over and over again. Majesty, radiance, beauty. It's, it's, it's a, a glimpse at the essential nature of God. And these men upon that mountain were forever changed as they encountered the glory of God. James did not have a chance to write down his encounter because he was one of the first Christian martyrs. He was the first of the 12, uh, besides Judas, to die, um, was, was uh, put to death. Um, I believe it's drawn a blank. I think it's Acts chapter 8 or Acts chapter 9, right in there. He, he, he dies. And uh, the, the book of James that we have recorded is not by this James. Just as another side note, that's James, the Lord's brother. This is James, the brother of John. But Peter and John recorded later on what they saw. Peter mentions it in 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But listen to what he says. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw it. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, and we were with him on that holy mountain. Peter was never the same. He saw and glimpsed the glory of God. We were with him on that holy mountain. It changed him. John wrote of it in John chapter 1 he, when he says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, speaking of Jesus' incarnation. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John wanted us to know that Jesus was not just a man. He was not just an ordinary human being. He wasn't even like an extraordinary human being. It was God. God come to this earth. God made flesh to dwell among us. And we saw his glory. And we know I want to ask you this morning, do you ever get a glimpse of God's glory? You may not have a Mount of Transfiguration experience. Most of us probably won't. But do you look for God's glory on display? Because it's all around us. You see, the psalmist says say that the heavens declare the glory of God. 
If we're looking, glory is all around us. But so often we miss it, you know? We spend so much stinking time with our face buried in these things. And I'm guilty, that's why I say we. we, we we're, we're occupied with trivial things that we, we, we miss the glory. And it's all around us. The, the, the landscape, the sunrise and the sunset, the animals that are going to be giving birth here in the spring, the, the newborns that will be all over, the, the, the glory of, of your children and your, your spouse and the, the sacred moments that God gives you, the glory that he wants to reveal to you in quiet moments with him, with his word in your hands, and his name upon your lips. He longs to display his glory. It's there for us to see if we have eyes to see. The second thing I, I wrote down here is that the king delights the father. The king delights his father. The first is that the king is glorious. But I noticed here that the king brings great joy to the father. Did you notice verse 5 that so that there's this manifestation of, of, his, of his glory. And Peter, of course, always the first to speak. He wants to build some tents and, you know, just set up and kind of have a party and hang around with Moses and Elijah. Um, and while he was still talking, he was carrying on, <laughs> just like Peter always does. And it says in verse 5, that while he was still speaking, it's like cut off in mid-sentence. Behold, look, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. <laughs> so as if the glory that was emanating from Jesus was not enough to fill them with awe and, and to give them something to talk about for years to come, all of a sudden now then a cloud comes over them. It's not like a storm cloud, but it says it's a bright cloud. It's, it's a, the Greek word there means radiant or full of light. So you've got the brightness of Jesus, you've got the brightness of the cloud above them. I mean, it would have been blinding on top of that mountain. And it moved over top of them, and they heard this voice boom forth, the voice of the Father. And he says, this is my beloved son. He, he could have used a lot of words to describe Jesus, a lot of good words. This is my faithful son. This is my, my truth-telling son. This is my prophetic son. But he chooses the word beloved. Jesus. <laughs> Siri's listening. <laughs> Jesus brings great delight to the Father. Do you ever think about that? Like just meditate. God, the Father could have said anything he wanted about Jesus. But he said, this is my beloved that word means someone who is dear, who is prized, who is valued. It goes on to say, in him I am well pleased. I take pleasure in him. I find satisfaction in him. Did they ever think about God like that, finding delight? Scripture actually lists a number of things that, that delight God, that he, he finds pleasure in. It's a, it's a great study if you take the time to do it. But at the top of that list, his son, Jesus. 
I wonder today, do we delight in Jesus? Like we can sing about him. We might occasionally talk about him. We might pray in his name. But does he bring us delight? Like, there are a lot of things that, that I get excited about. You know, that I'm, I'm, I'm hoping the Spartans do well in the tournament. They're playing like they got a, lot, a little bit of life now. And I would be excited if the Spartans would go to the finals and win the tournament. Uh, I, I can get excited about a good meal. You've heard me talk about desserts way too much, so I won't go on about that. A lot of things that we get excited about, but I, I wonder if, if we take delight in Jesus. It's impossible to get too excited about Jesus. It's impossible to prioritize him too much in your life. The Father, in his words of affirmation, in his words that are representing his view of Jesus, remind us that we too should treasure the Savior, treasure this King whom God has sent. Thirdly, we need to remember about the King, that the King is worthy of our worship. You see, as we reflect upon his glory, and as we reflect upon the nature and character of God's precious Son, Jesus, our hearts should naturally go to worship. Worship is what takes place when we, in some way, encounter God. When we meet God through his word, through uh, the fellowship of God's people, by spending time in prayer, when God reveals himself to us, the natural heart response should be, Worship, And you'll notice that often in Scripture, one of the things that happens when people encounter God in a powerful way is that they end up on the ground. <laughs> they just, they fall down. You remember Isaiah? That was his response, Isaiah chapter 6. He cries out and, 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 and is just feeling the frailty of the sinful flesh. And he says, woe is me, I am undone. And he's on his face. I told the story in the, in the first service without my wife's permission, so I'm asking forgiveness ahead of time. <laughs> when, I, when I first met her, I discovered that I had this, um, I, I, I had an amazing woman uh, that God had, had gifted me with. But there was also uh, an amazing uh, component to this relationship that I was going to exploit. Uh, as, uh, so I grew up, as I mentioned, with, with a house of four boys. And I don't know what it is that's natural. I think it's just, I don't think anybody has to teach boys how to do this, but we you love to scare one another. I don't know if, if, if that's a universal experience with guys, but in the households I've been in, in my home, home of birth, and now the home in which I reside, boys love to terrify one another. And the, the greater the response, the greater the scream, uh, the, the more you know, you're patting yourself on the back. And, uh, and so um, I was still just kind of an immature kid. I was 20 years old when I got married, so I, had, I was still growing up. And um, I discovered something about this girl that I was dating that, uh, number one, she scared easily. I could, I could startle her very easily. And number two, if she was standing up, I scared her. My wife does not have, now she's gotten better with four boys of our own, but um, she did not at that time have a fight or flight um, response. And it's a, it very, probably would be a very interesting study 
uh, because that's typical, like usually you have one or the other. Uh, she had like possum. And so I would scare my wife and she would drop completely to the ground. And I'm like, when I, the first time I did it, it was kind of by accident. I'm like, no way, this is cool. And so I gotta, I gotta show my brothers, like I've gotta find a way to scare my wife in front of my brothers so they can see this awesome phenomenon. With four boys, she's learned the, um, the fight or flight though now, a little bit, little bit more, just for survival purposes. Um, you know, in the Bible, when men and women encountered God in a powerful way, that was their same response. Um, they went down on their face. They, as sinful people, recognized that they were in the presence of majesty, of a holiness that was nothing like they had ever encountered before. And they were completely undone. And that was the response of the disciples here. The glory that was being revealed from Jesus, the voice from heaven, it was too much. And the disciples fell down. It says they were terrified. As we encounter God, our response should be awe. I, I think, you know, sometimes we recoil from that idea of fear, being afraid of God. And I think on this side of the cross, there is something to that because we now have this intimacy with God that wasn't there before in the Old Testament. But I still think that that that, that spirit of awe, when we truly encounter God, while we don't have to be afraid for our lives because of what Jesus has done for us, I think that there should be a healthy fear, a healthy awe of his majesty, of his glory, of his greatness. The disciples in this moment, they didn't process how they were going to respond. They didn't think it through. It wasn't calculated. Should I lift my hands? Uh, how should we worship here in this moment? It was just boom, the ground. The king, he is worthy of our worship. We should seek to encounter God. He longs to be known. He longs to draw us near. But when we encounter him, our proper response should be worship. Don't wait to worship until Sunday mornings when the worship team gets on the stage. Worship should be taking place throughout the day, throughout the week, as we encounter God and stand before him and see him at work and his beautiful creation. His glory's all over. And our worship should be continuously flowing. Whenever I, I study the scriptures, I always try to ask, so what? what what's God saying? What's what should our response be based upon what Matthew 17 says? This is an amazing story, but what's God calling us to do as a result of what we've read here? I want us to step back and remember the, the big picture. We're talking about the king and his kingdom. We've talked about this kingdom being a, a kingdom that's, that has come, but it's still coming and will fully come. We, we, we use the phrase already, but not yet. Jesus says this kingdom is here. But yet, this kingdom, his rule and his reign is, is still spreading. It's still manifesting itself throughout this age. But it will not be fully realized and established until the king returns again at his second coming, in which we will see the kingdom in its fullness. We've been talking about that. And we've been talking about the king, this king Jesus. 
here we're talking about his glory. One of the ways in which we honor God is by giving the glory that's due his name. When we meditate upon how glorious he is, we are glorifying him. Now, he doesn't need that. This is a difficult concept. We're all human beings. We, we need some encouragement sometimes. Even the strongest, most self-assured, most self-confidence among us need every now and then to have a pat on the back and to hear a word of encouragement. But you know what? God is not like that. So like when we, when we lift praises to his name, when we glorify him, he's not somehow like, like in a video game, like getting supercharged up. He's not like Mario uh, getting bigger and like feeling, like, yeah, no. Like, like our, our singing this morning didn't get God like pumped up for the day. He's like, oh, that time change was killing me too, God. Guys, thanks for you know, jazzing me up a little bit. God doesn't need that. Like he's complete. He's, he's, he's completely full of glory. He's completely full in and of himself of who he is. Like he doesn't need, need our praise. They don't add anything to him. But, but what, 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 our, what our praises do, when we glorify the name of God, not only, number one, does it, does it do us good by fixing our eyes on Jesus, but the, the praise goes, then it resounds to others around us. And they're hearing us tell stories about this amazing God. And the most excellent being in all the universe is getting the credit that is due him. So we think about how this applies, I wrote down just a couple things as we close. First of all, seek the king. Seek the king. Don't stand around and wait for a Mount of Transfiguration. Don't just like sit around and expect like one of these days when I'm, when I'm on a YouTube binge, late at night, all of a sudden the, the lights are going to flicker and the screen's going to go off and I'm just going to see this gigantic light come through the the bedroom window, I'm going to hear this voice from heaven, like I'm, I'm waiting and waiting and waiting, one day something like this is going to happen, I'm going to see the glory of God, it may be, maybe that will happen, um, it may be the police with a floodlight in your window too, <laughs> I don't know, but don't wait for that, like seek the king. The Bible says, seek him while he may be found. I love David's words in, in Psalm 63. He's like, I mean, this, is, this should be our cry. Oh, God, you are my God earnestly. You hear that word? Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry, weary land where there's no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. David went to the sanctuary. He went looking for God. He says, I'm seeking you. Oh, won't you seek him? Seek to spend time with God. I just got to hear a brother last night share about his, his time uh, each morning uh, with the Lord, uh, spending time in the word and in prayer. And, and he, he just described it in so, such intimate terms of being able to hear from God and be with and in the presence of God. I love hearing Christians talk like that. because I know that they're doing this. They're, they're seeking him earnestly. Because their soul thirsts for him. Seek the king. Secondly, stand in awe of the king. Stand in awe of the king. We become like what we behold. And um, 
David went on in Psalm 63 to say that he's seeking God because his steadfast love is better than life. He says, my lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. That's David's heart. As he encountered God, as he sought God, he stood in awe of this God. I will bless you as long as I live. Paul goes on to tell us in 2 Corinthians 3 that we all with an unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. As we see God in his majestic beauty, as we see him for who he is and meditate on his divine perfections, we become transformed into the image of our Savior. A powerful, powerful picture. And then finally, I just want to encourage, listen to the King. As you encounter God, um, as we read the scriptures, um, it's not just for the purpose of an experience. It's not just for the purpose of being flooded with joy or warmth. There is a, a call and a commission. Uh, you remember Isaiah? We'll go back to Isaiah 6. He fell down. He says, woe is me, I am undone. When God picked him up, what did he say? What did Isaiah say after, after he got up? Here am I, Lord. Send me. He encountered God, was stirred by God, and he longed to go. If, if you gather your kids around, it's a Saturday morning, and You've got some important chores to do. And uh, you read off their, each of their assignments. I want you to, to clean your room. You're in charge of sweeping the garage. You're in charge of mowing the lawn. And they just sit there and nod. And then they go back to their video games or go back to playing. You're like, what, what did I just miss here? Like, did you just not hear that? Like, there was a purpose for us gathering together. It was to come together and then go out. It's like you were, you got your message, you got your mission, and then you were supposed to go. Like when we come together Sunday mornings and we worship God and we say, oh, what an amazing experience. When you gather together in your quiet time during the week and you say, oh, what an amazing experience. And then you go about your day like nothing happened. I have to imagine if God had hair, he's up there pulling it out. Like that, that wasn't the idea. Like you were to be built up and to be blessed and, and then you're supposed to go out and to take this mission of the glory of God, this message of a majestic, loving, saving God into the world. And that's, that's actually what, I mean, God could have called Jesus anything or, or described him in any way. He described him as a beloved son. And then he could have, he could have finished that statement with anything else. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. What's his next word? Listen to him. Do what he says. Follow him. So often we, we come and we sing about God. We, we want to worship God. We get excited about some of the feelings that we have about God. But we don't want to listen to God. That's, that's, the, that's the end goal of encountering his glory. Is to go out as one's. Who are sent. In Isaiah's account, in Isaiah chapter 6, in order to get Isaiah off the ground, do you remember what, what, what happened? Anybody remember? There was a, an angel, I believe, that was sent down and, 
touched the cord of his lips. God had to touch Isaiah to get him up. And did you notice here in the story in Matthew 17 that the same thing had to happen to the disciples? They had fallen down at this incredible encounter. And verse 7 says, Jesus came and he touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. You know, the only way that we can encounter a holy God is when we've been touched by Jesus. If you're here this morning and you think, oh, this sounds great, but I don't, I don't know God that way. Earnestly seeking him and seeing his glory and all that stuff, it sounds kind of cool, but I don't know God like that. I want to tell you this morning that you can. And the way that you can is by having Jesus spiritually touch your heart. The Bible teaches us that after this, Jesus was going to go to the cross. He was going to die on the cross and pay for the sins that separated us from this holy God. He's going to rise again from the grave. And the message that his disciples would be sent with is that if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be saved. You can be touched by God so that you can encounter God, so that you can come near without fear. You can come near in love and in forgiveness. If you've never done that today, I hope today would be that day where you trust Jesus and begin a journey where you can come to know God like this. This God who longs for us to come and stand in awe of his glory and be touched by glory so that we can be sent out as ambassadors of the king. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, God, show us your glory. Give us a glimpse of the one who wraps himself in light. I, I, I can't even I can't even fathom that. So God, give us a heart that longs to know you deeply, that longs to encounter you powerfully, and then. And then strengthen our heart to be disciplined so that we will stop to hear from you, stop to be with you, slow down and get quiet in your presence so that we can hear your voice, to get a glimpse of your majesty. Give us eyes to see so that we're not just looking for it during a worship service on Sunday morning or even just in our quiet time during the week. May we get those glimpses of glory and with our spouse and with our kids and out in nature and, and others that you bring into our life and ways in which we see your providence and your good deeds and loving hand at work. So God, as you give us glimpses of your glory, may we never walk away the same. Peter, James, and John couldn't May we walk away as changed people, sent on a mission with a message about this glorious King. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.
I want to give you just a few moments right where you are to just God speak into your heart. Just spend a few moments in prayer. Our worship team is going to play quietly for a moment. And, and there's something on your heart that you want to bring to God. Uh, if you're a, a writer, there's spots on the back of the notes there for you to just write down what God's speaking to your heart about. And if you'd like someone to pray with, we'd love for you to come on up and do that. Listen to the voice of God.
We just pray, God, that you help us be like our children when they're hurt and they're crying and they run to us with their arms raised, God, that you help us do the same for them. Help us lift our hands.